You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I, of course, like everyone else, was somehow blindsided by Justice Anthony Kennedy's announcement that he was retiring from the Supreme Court. And of course, the consequence of that announcement is that Donald J. fucking Trump is going to make a second appointment to the United States Supreme Court. Within two years, Barack Obama only got two appointments to the Supreme Court in his eight years. Like I said, we knew this was coming. In fact, someone, someone named Hillary Clinton tried to warn us about it. She tweeted on the 22nd of December 2015, a Republican president could nominate as many as four Supreme Court justices. Why that should terrify you. And people jumped down her throat. Lefties jumped down her throat. How dare Hillary Clinton attempt to bully us into voting for her in November of 2016 by bringing up the Supreme Court. That was manipulative of her to cite the Supreme Court. Now, of course, it seems relevant. Now everyone wishes they could jump in their time machine and take the Supreme Court seriously in November of last year in the same way that right-wingers have been taking the Supreme Court seriously for decades. Listening to lefties talk about the Supreme Court kind of reminds me, and this is a big reach and bear with me, reminds me of listening to anti-vaxxers talk about why their kids don't need vaccines because they don't really worry about polio or measles or diphtheria or whooping cough or mumps or tetanus because they don't know any kids who are getting those diseases. So why is everyone so afraid of them? Why should we vaccinate our children to prevent them from getting these diseases that nobody gets anymore? Dot, dot, dot. But nobody gets those diseases anymore. Children don't get those diseases anymore for the most part because of vaccines. But vaccines have been so effective for so long that people have forgotten what those childhood illnesses were like. And some people now are more afraid of the vaccines than the diseases they helped prevent and have very nearly in some instances eradicated. So we take them for granted. And I really feel like the left for 30, 40 years kind of taken the Supreme Court for granted and the judiciary for granted. They were this firewall that would prevent the worst abuses. And we could rely on the court to protect Roe. We could rely on the courts to deliver justice to same-sex couples. Soon after, majorities in many states voted to deny same-sex couples the right to marry, wrote it into their state constitutions. We could rely on the Supreme Court. We could find relief there. And we got relief there pretty regularly for so long that in the same way anti-vaxxers take a world without diphtheria for granted, we took a liberal Supreme Court for granted. And then we took a nearly evenly divided Supreme Court for granted. And then we took a Supreme Court for granted that issued primarily conservative rulings on a great many things, but every once in a while came through with something like Obergefell or another decision protecting Roe v. Wade in theory if not in practice, because Roe v. Wade in practice has been pretty much gutted all across the country. There are states where it is effectively impossible for most women to avail themselves of their constitutional right to get an abortion. But still, getting back to the Supreme Court and the anti-vaxxers, we took it for granted. Took it for granted and didn't think about it, didn't focus on it with laser-like precision in the same way that the right has for so long. 
shouted down lefties and Dems and progressives who would mention the courts, mention the Supreme Court as something liberals and progressives might want to take into consideration when they head to the ballot box. Even if your heart's pick, the one you wanted most, wasn't on the ballot, maybe think about the court. Vote for the lesser of two evils rather than sulking at home or showing up and third-party rat-fucking everyone else with your vote? Yeah, we are in a deep hole now. Donald Trump is going to appoint a second person to the Supreme Court, even if we impeach that motherfucker tomorrow. And we should impeach that motherfucker already. That motherfucker should have been impeached a year and a half ago. On day one, just for violating the emoluments clause of the Constitution, it'll be Mike Pence in there if Donald Trump gets impeached. And Pence's appointments will be no better on abortion, on the union movement, on jerry-rigging, right to vote, gay marriage, a Pence appointment isn't going to be really any better than a Trump appointment. So we are in a very deep hole. And in the same way, conservatives focused for 30, 40 fucking years on the court and would march in, fall in line, and head to the ballot box thinking the court, which is what so many evangelicals did when they lined up behind Donald Trump. Liberals are going to have to do that now. Progressives and Democrats are going to have to do that now. Think of the judiciary. If nothing else, if your heart's desire didn't make it through the primary, think of the judiciary and show the fuck up and vote for the person from the left who did. Some anti-vaxxers are getting the vaccine religion, usually after their kid gets desperately sick or kids in their social circle get desperately sick with childhood diseases that vaccines had pretty much eradicated. Some anti-vaxxers are coming around because they helped to bring these diseases back and now they see the urgent need for childhood vaccinations. Kind of the same thing here. Some lefties are coming around on taking the importance of the judiciary into consideration when it comes time to vote. Would have been better for us, for the world, for the planet, for the union movement, for people of color who'd like to vote, for same-sex couples who'd like to marry, for women who'd like to have control of their own bodies if more people had come around in November of 2016, this really isn't a case of better late than never because we are going to be pretty well fucked for the next few decades as we attempt to dig out from under this. The first step digging out from under this for the anti-vaxxer, getting your kids vaccinated. For the rest of us, November. Just going to have to mention November at the top of every show every week. No fucking November is coming. Remember November. It's coming. And our only hope for preventing Donald Trump from putting a third appointee on the Supreme Court in 2019 is taking back the Senate in November of 2018. Get registered. We're in a race, really. The Supreme Court issued a couple of rulings last week, 5-4 rulings. Gorsuch did that. McConnell did that. 5-4 rulings upholding racist gerrymandering in states. This is really a race. Can they erect tall enough barriers to voting before November of this year to prevent the blue wave from crashing over D.C.? Or can we do the work, register the voters, climb over the barriers that the Republican Party, with the help of the GOP, is building to prevent people from voting, climb those barriers, clear them before November? It really is a race, a race for our lives, for our democracy, for the future of our planet, individual liberty, all on the line this November. Get registered. Register folks you know who are not registered. Show up for the primaries. Find somebody that you really like out there. Make a donation. 
to their campaign. And then find somebody else that you know personally who is not registered to vote. Make sure they don't have a MAGA hat in their closet. And then register them to vote. Because on Tuesday, November 6, 2018, we need to turn the fuck out. And we need to clear the hurdles and barriers that the Republican Party is putting up right now to prevent young people, people of color, poor people from voting this November and voting these bastards out this November. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro free edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast, twice as long and no ads at all. Subscribe at savagelovecast.com. Justin Lay Miller joins us to discuss his new book all about sexual fantasies. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 27-year-old straight female uh, calling in from Canada. Um, I'm recently single and have been started dating. I recently met this one guy, and he he's really great. We got along. We had a lot of fun. We're both like digging each other so we kind of started hooking up and in short he's just really bad in bed to be honest he kisses like a robot like it's almost like one two three stick out your tongue one two three like there's no uh you know playing off how i'm feeling there's no like feeling uh you know getting into it it's i think he's really inexperienced um he's also autistic if that's relevant so i think you might have a hard time like reading other people's body language and stuff Anyway, I would be totally happy to, you know, teach him and like get him to kind of do the things that I enjoy in bed, but I don't really know where to start with that. Like, is it offensive to tell someone like you're not very good? Um, I've tried like some subtle cues, moving a hand there, like small gestures, like suggesting certain things, um, but he's really just kind of gets focused in the moment and isn't open to suggestions like that. So I think it's almost requires like a sit down talk. Would that be cruel? Or how exactly do you um, recommend approaching this? I responded to a letter in this week's Savage Love from a woman who married a man despite the fact that the sex wasn't good. And surprise, after the marriage, the sex got no better. And I, and I wrote in Savage Love, here's something I've never seen in my inbox, a letter from someone explaining how sex with their partner was infrequent, impersonal, uninspired, unimaginative, lousy, etc. at first, but holy moly, did the sex ever get a fuck of a lot better after the wedding? Maybe that happens, I went on. Maybe that's happened for some people who aren't listening to the sound of my voice right now. But I can't imagine it happens often, and that might be because my sample is skewed. You know, People who the sex wasn't there, the sex wasn't good, it wasn't working, who stuck it out and stayed together and got married or shacked up permanently, partnered, and then it got better. The sex got better. Something started clicking. Those people don't have a problem anymore. Those people aren't going to send me letters. So anyway, I wrote about that in Savage Love this week and encouraged people who were together at first and the sex wasn't good, but they stuck it out, stayed together, got married, and the sex got better and things clicked and began to work. And I encourage those people to write to me, these people who, by definition, don't have a problem, so don't need the assistance of the sex advice columnist or sex advice podcaster. And lo and behold, I have been hearing from them lots and lots of emails from people who figured it the fuck out. So I want to offer you some thin thread of hope. You like this guy, but the sex isn't good. Well, you're not going to stick around forever if the sex doesn't improve, which means you literally have nothing but a lousy sex partner to lose and potentially a good sex partner to gain if you just open your mouth, tell him what he's doing wrong, and tell him how you want him to do it differently. 
people on the spectrum, people who have Asperger's, people who are autistic, don't read social cues well. So don't wait for him to interpret your indifference or whatever physical cues you might be sending him or subtle emotional cues you might be sending him to realize that he needs to kiss you differently. Just fucking tell him. If he can't handle constructive feedback, if he can't handle a woman who's using her words to describe how she wants him to use his tongue, not somebody that you can keep dating, not somebody that you have a future with. If he reacts well, well, Yahtzee, you can deconstruct what's lousy about his approach and you can reconstruct the sex partner that you need or that you would like him to be or that being with you would give him the opportunity to be. Literally, you have nothing to lose but someone who kisses you poorly and with whom the sex is lousy. And you have so much to gain, at least judging from these many, many letters I've received just in the 30 hours since Savage Love this week was published from people who used their words, argued about it, talked about it, maybe saw a couple's counselor once or twice to not get sex tips from the couple's counselor, but to improve the ways that they communicated with each other. And they figured it out. They made it better for themselves. The sex for them is working now. And that fills me with hope because my instinct, based on the letters I received, my skewed sample, is to tell people when the sex doesn't work to get the fuck out. But maybe I need to readjust my approach. And you call her? You need to readjust yours, too. Start using your words, not just your tongue. Uh, hey, Dan, I've got a question for you. Um, me and my boyfriend have been seeing each other for uh, almost a year now. He's 42, and I'm, uh, I'm 27. And uh, simply enough, I'm trying to figure out how to enjoy um, bottoming more. Um, before this boyfriend, I would talk more than uh, I bought him. But now uh, with him, I'm, uh, we're exclu- like, I, I exclusively bought him. It's been a, sl- well, it's been a slow process with me at least just uh, with us taking our time so I can be more relaxed because at the beginning he was um, rushing everything and, and would end up doing more harm than good. So now, um, now we're at a point where, where we're, I'm enjoying uh, like the sex more than I was before, but now um, because I'm more relaxed, he wants to go a lot harder. So uh, when we fuck, it's just, um, it's, it's too intense. I feel it all in my internal organs. So my first part of the question is, is there a way or positions where I don't have to feel like my organs are kind of getting turned in inside out? And then the second part of my question, I guess, is that uh, I've also never had G-spots, like a G-spot stimulation, um, which sounds like it uh, would be nice because uh, when I used to top, the guys were always enjoying stuff uh, a lot more and, and making like more sounds and, and moaning a lot more. So I'm wondering, is there a way to figure out if this can even happen uh, to me? Or is it possible that I might be uh, too in my head from the rough sex? So when I'm thinking about the pain, it's taking away from me trying to relax and enjoy it. And maybe that's more of a hindrance and taking away the enjoyment that I could be having. The problem isn't that your boyfriend is a top. The problem is that your boyfriend is an inconsiderate, selfish top. And you should take your butt and run. I can't assign you a position that's going to magically hit your butt G spot, which is just your prostate gland. And for some people, stimulation of the prostate and, of course, all the nerve endings in the anal region is incredibly pleasurable. But for some people, their prostate just isn't wired that way. It doesn't create that kind of pleasurable sensation that it does in others. In the same way some guys, their tits are wired. Like you play with their tits and they kind of go crazy. You play with their nipples and they go nuts and it's really important. And for other guys, they're just tits aren't wired that way. And in my opinion, and I don't have data or science to back this up, but hopefully some science person out there listening will get right on this. Same goes for prostates. Some guys just that's everything that works for them. It is intensely pleasurable. And for other guys, yeah, not so much. And it's nice of you that you're willing to 
sort of expand your sexual repertoire a bit and adjust and, and, and try on a different role in an effort to make this relationship work. But if your boyfriend was just cramming it in you at first without any foreplay and before you were ready and that was painful and now he's doing a little foreplay but once he's in you, he's pounding the shit out of you in a way that's rearranging your internal organs. That's painful. Get the fuck away from this guy. This guy doesn't deserve your ass bottoming might work for you with a more considerate boyfriend who's willing to adjust or slow his roll or drill your hole in a different way and at a different intensity so that he's providing you with pleasure during the fucking and not just taking pleasure from you now some people that's what they want when they get fucked they want to be taken by somebody who is using their hole for their pleasure but that gives them intense pleasure it doesn't give you intense pleasure to be used in the way this guy is using you my advice would be to take butt sex off the menu entirely and explore if you want to give this guy another chance if you want to stick it out before allowing him to stick it back in explore other sex play options oral and mutual masturbation and fantasy and frotage which is him putting his dick between your thighs and up along your butt crack and you clenching your thighs together and him fucking the shit out of your thigh gap that can work too, rubbing off on each other and together. So he still gets to fuck and he can go fucking crazy fucking you like that without shoving your kidneys up into your throat. But if he isn't willing to do that, if he really is this selfish or the groove that he's carved into himself sexually is so deep that there's no way he can adjust his style so that it is pleasurable for you too, this isn't going to work. Or you can be one of those couples, couple of tops who do other stuff together and when it's anal and you're topping, it's a very special guest star. But it's not your butt on the line or his either. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old straight man living on the East Coast. I've recently been out of a relationship and into the single life now. I have recently been seeing a girl who is great. Everything about her seems awesome. The problem is, <laughs> and I'm sure you would try to make conclusions on where the problem is already as I'm saying this, is I walked by her refrigerator and I saw Trump stickers. Now, I'm not a very political person, but am I wrong for making a short judgment on a person like that is is it a is it changeable is there any leeway with this like should i just call this completely off right now as is i am not a fan of the current president and i know for a fact that you are not as well um i would just like to hear your opinion about the whole political aspect of dating someone or even just having friends with benefits with someone who has completely different political opinions. Politico's cover story last Friday, Young Trumpies Hit D.C. and D.C. Hits Them Right Back by Daniel Lipman and Ben Schreckinger. And it's all about how all of these dim young things who work for the Trump administration who are getting on Tinder and Bumble and Farmers Only and Christian Mingle and Recon and Grinder in D.C. 
aren't meeting with a lot of romantic success. Most people in D.C. don't want to touch people who work for Trump with their genitals. Nor should they want to touch people who work for Trump with their genitals. Nor should you want to touch a Trump supporter with your genitalia caller. Funny story. Little digression. Years ago, somebody took a picture of me in my office, and on the wall behind me was a McCain Palin sign tacked to the wall with a bunch of other political signs. And this got passed around on the internet a little bit to prove that I was a McCain supporter, secretly a McCain supporter, which is why I posed in front of a McCain Palin sign in my office to help keep that on the down low. And of course, it was ironic. It was there to make fun of McCain-Palin. It was next to other political signs and other things mocking Republicans, but that didn't matter to the defamatory dipshits on the internet. Maybe she's being ironic. Maybe she has that Trump shit up on her kitchen because somebody thought it was funny and gave it to her because she hates Trump more than anybody else in her social circle hates Trump. And somebody stuck that on her fridge and she had a laugh and left it there. You owe it to your dick, if you're into this girl, to at least ask her about that Trump shit on the fridge or on the wall, wherever it was in her apartment, and find out if it was, like my McCain-Palin sign, ironic. If it was ironic, fuck the shit out of her. Date her. Fall in love with her. Marry her. And have lots of babies who will grow up to vote Democratic, progressive, liberal, DSA members, all of them. And if it isn't ironic, if she's actually a Trump supporter, don't just ghost. Tell her why you don't want to see her again. Let her know that supporting a racist, sexist, misogynistic, sexual predator who is dismantling the Atlantic Alliance and NATO and attacking the air and we breathe and the water we drink and violating every norm and attacking the free press and destroying choice and attacking queers, that that has a social cost. And that she is going to be limited to dating only other Trumpies. And you know what's funny about these Trump fuckers that are profiled in Politico and and people I've heard from complaining, Trump supporters complaining about how no one will date them? Why the fuck aren't these people dating each other? Is it because they know deep down in their gut that there's something wrong with people who are supporting Trump? Even Trump supporters know there's something wrong with people who are supporting Trump? Even Trump supporters and Trump staffers don't want to touch other Trump staffers or supporters with their genitals? Because they know there's something wrong with them and themselves, too. I think that might be it. There's got to be a reason why they're all out there complaining about how decent people won't fuck them. My advice to Trump supporters, go fuck some indecent people. People who are indecent in the same way you are. Dan, I hope you can help me because I don't know what to do. I got into a little tiff with my fiance's best friend and best man at our future wedding on Facebook about these horrific atrocities being committed in this country, separating families, and he supports it. And I say it's not a difference of politics, it's a difference of morality, and I cannot be friends with someone who has no human decency. And I mentioned fascism because that's how fascism starts, alienating people who are different from you. And apparently this guy took it as me calling him a Nazi, which I didn't didn't say that. I just explained what Nazism is. And so he blew up at my fiance and, but now he says he wants to be friends, but I have to apologize. And I don't want to apologize. I didn't say anything that wasn't true, but normally I would do, and I, 
anything for my fiance, and he would really because he says this would mean a lot for him. But I just don't think I could do it. Andy, think I'm being ridiculous? I'm trying to think of who else has snatched children away at processing centers from their parents and hustled those children into cages. I'm trying to think of who else told parents that they were just taking their kids off to the showers and then those parents never saw their kids again. Yeah, it's kind of hard to avoid the other N-word, Nazi, when talking about people who would do this or people who would smile on people who would do this or support people who would do this or people who would laugh when Jeff Sessions, who is in charge of this, whose idea this was, who rolled this policy out, jokes about it, jokes about the trauma that they're inflicting on these parents and the lifelong trauma and psychological damage being inflicted on these children, some of whom are never going to see their parents ever again because they're still in this country, because there's no paperwork, there's no interagency communication tracking the parents and children. In some cases, the parents have been deported without their children. Their children are now in foster care. They're never going to see their children again. There is one case where the children were deported without the parents. Yeah, this is some Nazi fucking shit that the Trump administration is engaged in. And I wouldn't want anyone at my wedding, let alone in my wedding party, who supported Trump, much less supported this particular policy. Even a lot of people who support Trump, even some of his evangelical, rabid, tongue so far up his ass, they are French kissing him on national television. Those people have distanced themselves from this policy, have said that it is wrong and would like some of them, not all of them, that they would like to see Trump change course and knock it the fuck off. Don't apologize. You need to stand your ground here with your husband-to-be who you love so much, who you would do anything for, that this is an issue of morality and you are not going to be bullied by him or by his best man into apologizing for sharing your feelings about this policy at the same time that his friend was sharing his feelings about this policy. You had a political disagreement. You're not going to apologize for your position. You're not going to apologize for the apt analogy that you made, for the dots that you connected. And you're not going to demand apology from your husband-to-be's best man either. The apology that he owes not just you, but the country, those parents, and those kids. Stand your fucking ground. No apology. Hey, Dan, cisgendered male here in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm in a relationship, kind of a newer one, six months. The problem is uh, our sexual compatibility. I can tell that she wants to get like a porn star pounding, and I'm unable to deliver it. And I'm wondering, like, are there ways to train yourself into this? Uh, Can you get yourself together in order to like keep it? going hard for long. I mean, I've tried kind of masturbating without coming. I've tried convincing her that we need to kind of do that, you know, like go for it and then stop so that I can train my neurons into the right pathway. But I'm wondering if you had any other advice as to how to get her what she wants and deserves. There's so many guys out there who are working so hard on getting themselves to last longer. And there's only so much that you can do. You can learn where that point of orgasmic inevitability is, where that going over the falls feelings come. And you can tiptoe up to it and pull back from it and tiptoe up from it and pull back from it and edge yourself basically during masturbation but also during partnered intercourse. 
But that's only going to prolong things. That's only going to take you so far toward porn star pounding them. At some point, you have to accept that there is a way that your body works. There's a way that your sexual arousal cycle functions. And you're one of those people who can't fuck for 45 minutes straight without coming or a half an hour straight without coming. And then you make accommodations and you find other ways to work around this. And I'm going to make a suggestion that some people who have penises sometimes have a problem with or they react as if this makes them inadequate somehow. But I think tools are tools and you build things with tools. And one of the tools at your disposal is your own dick. But that is not the only tool at your disposal. So – once you intro your dick, you're good for however much time that you're good for. If she wants a 15, 20, 30-minute porn star pounding so that she can have multiples before you have your one sad, lonely, pathetic male orgasm before your body is flooded with prolactin and then you want to sleep and your dick gets soft and you're actually kind of disgusted by sex, that whole thing about dudes rolling over and they're just done when they're done, that's not – Dude's behaving badly. That's hard fucking hormonal wiring, hormonal souping that dudes go through. Get yourself a strap-on dildo. Fuck the shit out of her with that strap-on dildo. If you don't want to strap a dildo onto your crotch because your dick's in the way, although there's plenty of videos online where you can see people who have a dick and a strap-on on at the same time, you can find strap-on dildos that you wear around your thigh. They come with basically a Velcro strap that's adjustable and you can put it on your thigh and she can sit on that dildo and grind on that dildo and then jump up and sit on your dick for a little bit and then go back to the dildo and back to your dick and back to the dildo and back to your dick and have her 30, 40, 50, 60, 90 orgasms before she finally sits back down on your dick that last time and you have your one lonely, sad, pathetic dude-gasm. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old queer woman in New York City. I have a question for you that I've never heard asked on the show, but I could be wrong. Um, I went on a date or a couple dates recently with this woman who I've had a great time with, a lot of fun, a lot of good chemistry. The last date we went on, she told me that she had top surgery, but she was female-identified. She just didn't feel uh, comfortable with her breasts, so she decided to remove them, um, but she didn't identify as transgender. Um, which was totally fine. Um, of course, like, I'm not going to say anything about that. That's her body and whatever she wants to do with it. However, I just thought about, like, how much I love breasts. And I, like, that's, like, when I have sex with a woman, I love to, like, touch her breasts and the nipples. And so now I'm not sure, like, what to think about that um, because she doesn't have any. Um, so I don't know if she's comfortable with me, like, touching her uh, chest now and, that's maybe a conversation I should have, but yeah, I guess I just want your input on that because that's one part I love about having sex with a woman is a woman's body. You were doing so well with your question and how you framed it. You were tiptoeing through the gender fucking minefield until you got to the end and you said, there's one thing you love about a woman's body is boobs and not all women's bodies have boobs and not all boobs have women's bodies as anybody who spent five horrifying minutes on tumblr could tell you so moving on if breasts are a deal breaker for you if you need boobs she's not the ideal sex partner for you and you have nothing to be ashamed of you're a queer woman who wants to be with a woman who has breasts this woman doesn't have breasts she will appeal and appeal for that very reason to other potential partners she does not appeal to you for that reason is it something that you can love her despite is it something that she wants to be loved despite? 
It's a convo you can have with her if you wish to have that convo with her. But I don't think you necessarily need to have that convo with her. If I came home and my male partner got breast implants, that would be kind of a deal breaker for me because the presence of boobies is not something that I'm interested in and I have no problem just putting that out there. You should have no problem. This is your sexuality. These are your preferences. We can and we should express our preferences and communicate them to others in non-shamey, non-guilty, non-assholery ways and that is possible. But we don't have to shit-can our preferences or pretend that we don't have the preferences that we have and we need to interrogate them, make sure they're ours, not just the preferences that were assigned to us by beauty standards or gender norms or the culture so that we don't deprive ourselves of wonderful potential partners. But if you've really dug down on this and boobs are absolutely necessary for you and this person that you were interested in, you have now learned apparently something you didn't observe at first or couldn't tell at first, doesn't have boobs, you're allowed to move on without hesitation, without apology. Hey, Dan. I'm a 45-year-old cis white male living in South Carolina. The reason I'm calling, a um, little backstory, before my wife and I decided to have kids, I had said that I didn't care what gender they were, what lifestyle they would eventually lead, as long as they were happy, healthy, and safe. Move 12 or 13 years forward, and my youngest daughter decides that she is now non-binary and goes by a new name. And we're completely open and accepting of that. But the issue we're having now is that she, uh, excuse me, they have a girlfriend that they met online that um, they visited each other several times over the last two summers, and we really like the uh, the girlfriend. But what is transpired now is we found out that the girlfriend is fluctuating non-binary. Sometimes goes by he, sometimes she. Uh, when they do visit, they do stay in the same bedroom together, and I'm sort of okay with it because I take the tact that since it's two biological females, that they uh, can't get pregnant. But now that the the partner is fluctuating uh, he, that that might change the dynamic for us, particularly because we have a two-bedroom apartment. And when the partner comes back from from their house with our youngest next week, they're going to stay in the same bedroom as our um, college-age daughter. And so we're just – because we don't know, we're wondering – does the partner who now may identify as male change the dynamic? Should we feel squeamish about it? Are we just sort of over-imagining things? This is really uncharted territory for us. We want all the kids to be comfortable, even more so than our own comfort. You're overthinking this in a big way. There are two reasons why parents don't allow their children's romantic partners, particularly their young children's romantic partners, to share rooms with their children in their house. Uh, it is to prevent either pregnancy, which makes an opposite sex pairing more potentially consequential, uh, or it is to prevent sexual activity under your roof. If you feel like your kid is too young to be sexually active and you don't want to telegraph to them your tacit approval or permission to become sexually active, you don't let them have romantic partners in their bedrooms or in their beds overnight. So mom, dad, which is it? Are you trying to prevent your non-binary kid from getting knocked up, which is a binary. You're pregnant or you're not pregnant. There's no fighting the binary when it comes to pregnancy. Uh, or are you trying to prevent your non-binary kid from becoming sexually active if you feel they're not ready? Depending on which one it is, then you know which move to make. If it's sexual activity, then they're 
partner can't stay in the same room with them regardless of whether their partner identifies as male or female at any given moment. If it's to prevent pregnancy, then there's really no issue here because your child's partner is not, by dint of biology, capable of knocking your non-binary kid up regardless of how that partner identifies gender-wise in the moment. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I'm a straight cis woman in my mid-30s. My husband and I have been together for over a decade and married for a little less than that. And one thing he really likes is he likes me to tell him stories when we're fucking about um, how slutty I used to be, which is true, but um, it's been a while. And so I feel kind of like I'm running out of stories, which is one thing. I feel kind of boring, repeating the same things over and over. But recently, I met this 23-year-old guy um, working on a creative project together. And um, we've just kind of been flirting a lot. Like, he, he knows we're married. He knows my husband. I, I know his girlfriend. I like her. Um, but we've just been kind of, like, flirting and texting. And, you know, he likes my um, Instagram pictures at um, 2 a.m. And, you know, it hasn't been anything sexual. It's actually mostly kind of, like, intellectual. But um, I definitely am getting, like, a charge out of being flirted with by this guy who's, like, more than 10 years younger than me. Um, and it's making me really horny, which my husband is enjoying. Um, but I haven't talked to him about it. Um, I, I, I'm not going to act on it. I don't think I think it'd be kind of a stupid thing for me to do. Um, but I am enjoying fantasizing about it. And I, I'm wondering if given that my husband likes to hear about how slutty I, I used to be, if he would like to hear about my fantasies, uh, or if it would just really freak him out, because that's not something we've ever talked about. Um, but also, should I just stop flirting with this younger guy? Um, should I get it out of my head, especially if I am pretty sure that actually opening up our marriage would be a mistake? There's only one person who knows the answer to the question that you're putting to me, and it ain't me. It's your husband. If you read cuckold narratives and you read how a lot of people, particularly straight men, arrive at the cuckold fantasy and then, fingers crossed, if everything works out with their partner, the cuckold reality that they fantasized about and it works well for them, it usually starts with the guy enjoying during sex, hearing about the adventures that their partner used to have before they met and became sexually exclusive. All the guys she slept with before, all of the experiences she had, the sex that she had, the ways in which she was slutty before him. That turns a lot of guys on to hear about whether or not your husband would be turned on by new experiences concurrent with the relationship he's in with you now experiences only he knows the answer to that question so you're gonna have to put it to him and i think you have a really good way in to frame the question honey i've been telling you all these stories i have told you all the same stories over and over again because i don't have any new ones there's this guy that i've been working on this project who's been kind of flirting with me do you want to hear about that do you want to hear about what if i weren't with you if we didn't have a monogamous commitment and I was single, would you like to hear about what if we had an open relationship or if I was single, I would do to that guy? Would that turn you on to hear? And then listen to him. Listen to what he says. And if that's absolutely positively not something that he's interested in, if he's insecure, threatened, or jealous, then don't go there. Just keep rehashing the same old stories for his entertainment. 
odds are, and I imagine, based on the many, many stories I've heard from people in the cuckolding lifestyle, that he will be okay with this to some extent. Maybe not the fuck the 10 years younger guy who has a girlfriend. She would have to be involved in that decision too for this to be ethical non-monogamy. But he might want to hear about your fantasies involving this guy and be turned on by the fact that although you're not sleeping with anybody else, that there are other people out there who would like to sleep with you. So there's somebody you need to put this question to. There is a person out there who can answer this question for you and you're already fucking him. Go ask him. Hi, Dan. I am 40 years old, straight female, typical soccer mom with two kids. Married for 12 years in a pretty strong and healthy relationship with my husband and recently started to try an open marriage. It was my idea and my husband gave me the blessing to be um, sexually active with other men. Met a single guy, 40 years old, who knows my situation and doesn't want a relationship either. So he, of course, gave me more attention in the beginning until we had sex, nice dinners, drinks, texting, etc. Then about six weeks, had sex about five times, and this is all new to me. I've never had a sex buddy. But one, are there some tips or rules I can follow? I just need some guidance. I know it's not black and white, but I hear these rules like no more than three times, no texting, it's just sex, no having a cup of coffee afterwards or anything like that unless you just want to hook up. And two, having enough buddy can you have the attention like I want, like I liked in the beginning, the text, the dinner, and sex? I just feel like the ball's always in my court now, and I contact him when I want to hook up. He said because of my busy schedule, but I think that's a poor excuse. I just want to be desired again, like in the beginning. And three, why do I care, like many women, if he rejects me when A, he's not even physically attractive, but he is a Casanova and I have to say, pretty much a loser, but I want more from him. Is it almost impossible for a woman, in this case for me, to not have any emotional connection with who I sleep with? No, I don't want to run off with him, but I still want more than sex. Does this mean I can't handle a sex buddy? Is it unlikely I'll find a guy that will give me both the attention and fulfill my sexual needs? But I have another date set up with another guy hoping I can let this one go which doesn't sound very healthy to me. And is what I'm doing technically swing. You ask what the rules are, and those aren't something you need to hash out with me. That's something you need to hash out with your husband, whether texting and a little bit of romance is allowed, or not, not romance, but some uh-huh. friendly intimacy, some casual interactions. You know, some people want to do an open relationship where sex with other people is just sex and there can be no texting, there can be no dinner, there can be no conversation. And if, I wouldn't want to be treated like that if I was somebody's sex partner on the side. I wouldn't want to be treated like a, a dildo or a fleshlight to be used for sex and discarded and held at arm's length or handled with tongs uh, and not treated like a person mm-hmm. with feelings. So the rules in my relationship, in my open relationship, allow for treating other people kindly and treating them like humans and taking an interest in who they are as persons and their life goals and aspirations and desires, right? And not just oh, yes. blowing loads in or on people and then hustling them out the door or hustling ourselves out the door as fast as possible. But those are the rules in my relationship. What's your husband up for? Okay. What is he okay with? 
Okay, he's more, I mean, I've already spoken to him. He's like, he is a sex toy, but I feel like he's afraid I'll get emotionally attached or somewhat. But I'm like, well, first of all, I'm a woman. I'm not going to sleep with someone that I don't like. So there's always a little bit of emotion like, right. involved. I want to like the person. So my partner is asking me, well, with whatever you want to be, I'm kind of asking him as well, the sexual partner. Are we just sex buddies or? Okay, no, wait, wait. Are we, friends, are we talking you know? about your husband or are we talking about your piece on the side? Oh, first one, the husband says he should be treated just like a sex toy. Okay. But but you, a lot of women, a lot of women in open relationships don't feel comfortable with that because male violence is always has to be factored in. And just having sex with some rando that you know nothing about that you don't feel safe with isn't going to work for a great number of women. Like people look at women and say, oh, women need intimacy and emotional connection to, to become aroused. And that's not true. Women often need emotional intimacy and a connection to feel safe enough to become aroused because they're trying to control for male violence um, and assholery. So, you know, if you're an opposite sex couple in a straight relationship and you're the guy and you're like, no, 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 just like treat him like a dildo, basically that's not going to work for most women in open relationships. So I would, if I were you, push back against the husband's limitations and say, for my own emotional safety and sexual safety, I need to know this person a little bit. Not a romance, but an intimate friendship is going to have to be established for me to feel safe. All right. Well, then, I mean, that answers it. helps me if these like these solid rules i'm like reading everything online you know don't ever do this you know don't ever go on a date you know nope nope you've got to do what works for you but you have to hammer out an agreement so that works for you works for your husband and that may mean compromise uh, on both sides Mm -hmm. like a limited number of dates or you know a a particularly like going out for coffee is okay like a long romantic meal and a dinner with you know wine and dessert not okay that kind of extended intimacy or romance is for your husband not for your fuck buddy but coffee and drinks and the occasional text maybe that's okay for your husband but you have to hash mm-hmm. it out with him as for this dude that you're talking about it sounds mm-hmm. like he romanced you pretty hard at the beginning and made an effort and now could take or leave you and you're not attracted to him so why are you worried about moving on from him i'm really confused about your feelings for this guy me too me too. I think it's just the physical, um, the physical connection. I mean, I'm embarrassed to literally show a picture of who, who I'm with. Uh-huh. <laughs> no. I'm like, oh my gosh. Well, you know, a lot I of can, a lot of kinks yeah. and fetishes and a lot of sexual desire can be prompted or really inflamed by transgression and, and, and violating taboos. And being with someone who's not conventionally attractive can Mm -hmm. feel like a transgression. Like there's something about him that works for you on an emotional level, or maybe like he's got the world's perfect dick. And you know, if you showed his picture to a friend, they'd be like, why are you fucking this guy? And rather than that disqualifying him or making your desire evaporate, that inflames your desire because you're not supposed to want him. And so you want him all the more. And I'm not saying this is the case for all people in this situation, but something about your sexuality, about your inner erotic script or life this particular thing works for you. I'm discovering that myself. Apparently I was surprised Um, again. Yeah. At least in this instance, but he's not meeting your needs, right? Well, after I, after I emailed you, he did text me back, but it was like 12 o'clock at night. I'm like, come on. He knows my, you know, schedule and all that. He's like, well, I hit you up this time. Cause I told, as I said, the ball always in my court. He basically said, well, more or less, you know, 
because I'm a full-time mom and all that. Right. And he hits me back at like 12 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, well, are you free the next morning? I just feel like it's always me initiating. And I feel, I was even asking my husband, I feel like I'm desperate. It's always me initiating. And that's where it comes back to. He's not the right piece on the side for you. And you have other options. There's this other guy that you're interacting with that you're interested in. And, you know, this is an open relationship now, so you don't have to choose between this other guy and some other guy in addition to your husband. You might be able to have both. And if there's something Mm -hmm. about being with this guy on his terms that really arouses you every once in a while, go ahead and be with this guy who could take or leave you. And maybe that's exciting, too, because you're transgressing not just against beauty standards, but also against what you've told yourself you want or what you actually do want. So something about being with him may... Be exciting for that additional bonus transgression. And then go find a guy who okay. is going to pursue you the way you wish to be pursued and invest in you the way you wish to be invested in, you know, with some romantic energy and effort. Like the texting, okay. and the, like going out for coffee. Those guys are out there too. I did meet another another person and I've been, I have been enjoying that. It's a little bit extra attention. That's all I mean. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you need the extra attention. But you can have that extra attention from someone else if there's something about this Casanova who's not conventionally mm-hmm. attractive in a way that you think would appall your friends that works for you. And it works for you even if you mm-hmm. have to see him only on his terms and only when you ask. You can keep seeing him. But if that makes you feel worse in the final accounting, if you end up feeling worse after having seen that guy than you feel sexually satisfied or better after having seen that guy, stop seeing that guy. Go see other guys. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you, Dan. Sure thing. Good luck. I'm glad you called. Thank you. Bye-bye. Lovely talking with you. Bye. Hi, Dan. I'm 26 years old, and I've been with my boyfriend for almost three years, and we just moved in together um, maybe about three months ago or so. Um, Things have been going great, but I could really use your advice on something. Things have been going really well, pretty much as expected since we moved in, um, including his um, increase in anxiety and fear that I'm going to cheat on him since we've been, since we've been living together. Um, this has been pretty much ever prevalent in our relationship except from the very start. I've never cheated on him or had any inclination to or done so much as talk to anyone, um, that would indicate that I might be cheating on him, but he's had other boyfriends in the past that have cheated on him. Um, also some issues with his parents, in his childhood, uh, being a little bit flighty. And so it's kind of manifested this fear in him that I'm either going to leave or going to cheat on him. And so it keeps popping up in our relationship. And I frankly don't know what to do about it anymore. So it's been uh, three years and keeps popping up. I thought that moving in together would kind of curb these fears to show that I'm committed and not going anywhere. But just last week and the week prior, he sees something on my phone or my computer that is nothing and makes it something. Um, it becomes a big ordeal. It's difficult for me because I definitely want to be trusted in my relationship and not made out to feel like I'm going behind somebody's back and being sick, secretive and um, malicious. Anyway, I could really use your advice. I know that people are not, uh, you know, your ideal partner is never perfect and you got to round up and look pass some of those flaws and try to make it work. And I've been trying to do that a lot, but I think this, this, just this one thing keeps popping up and makes me question that. So how do you know when to round up and when to realize that your differences are too much? Here's an idea. 
fuck somebody else and send him the video. Cheat on him. Get it over with. If you're going to be constantly put on trial for, convicted, and executed for the crime, might as well commit the fucking crime. Of course, I'm not being serious. I am being sarcastic. You need to sit down your boyfriend and tell him that you are going to leave him, that you are going to move the fuck out if he can't get a goddamn grip on this. Accusations of cheating, insecurities uh, about infidelities. Most people in closed relationships, even people in open relationships that have a lot of rules, have those fears. They, they fear being cheated on. They have insecurities around infidelities. Sometimes they get worried about a straight email or a relationship that their partner is having with somebody at work or a friend that seems a little too intimate and threatening. And they process that with their partner in a healthy way. Constant accusations of cheating and insecurity are red flags for abusive and or controlling partners. It is a weapon in the abuser's arsenal that's often used to justify emotional abuse and physical abuse. Most people who are physically abused will tell you that the abuse came after accusations of infidelity, accusations of cheating, and to address those accusations of infidelity and cheating and to set their partner's minds at ease, people in these relationships who are trying mightily to, to round up or make it work will begin to isolate themselves. So I can't be accused of cheating if I don't go out with my friends after work for a drink. I can't be accused of cheating if I'm not texting with anyone. I can't be accused of cheating if I cut off the friendship that I have with a couple of my exes or people I briefly dated because – and in the end – the person has no support system. They're isolated from their friends, often from their family too. And that can be when the real abuse starts, the physical abuse. It's real abuse up to that moment too. That can often be when the physical abuse starts because this person has isolated themselves, ended all these relationships, is now embarrassed about going to their friends that they have ghosted on and asking for their help. Yeah. You need to head this off at the fucking pass. You have dealt with this bullshit for three years. You need to tell your boyfriend that you're not going to put up with it anymore, that he trusts you or he doesn't. If he doesn't, you're out. You're gone. And that the person he needs to talk to about his irrational fears and insecurities is a counselor because he is not in good working order. He is not relationship material. If he is constantly for no reason and with no evidence, dragging you over the coals for something that you did not fucking do and have no interest in doing. All that said, cheating happens. Most relationships, majority of relationships, long, long, multi-decade relationships, somebody's going to cheat on somebody. In my personal experience, you know who cheats first? The asshole making the accusations that the other partner is cheating on them constantly or tempted to cheat on them constantly. So you might want to go. You might want to get out now. At the very least, you need to tell this guy that you are going to get out, that this is a cancer that is going to kill your relationship. And it's his responsibility to go get whatever form of chemo he needs to kill this cancer before it kills your relationship. Stand strong. I mean, ask yourself, well, I'll leave you with this. Ask yourself, can you put up with this? The drama, the conflict, the policing, can you put up with it for 50 years? Sometimes that's very clarifying. The people are in a relationship. There's something that's going on that's very troubling. They put up with it for a couple of years. They don't know what to do. It's not getting any better. It, sometimes it's getting worse. And they're just so stuck in this moment and this day and trying to get through this day that they don't take the long view. 
And that taking the long view is often what helps people go, oh, yeah, I'm out. I'm gone. I'm done. It's asking yourself, can I stand this for 50 fucking years? And if the answer is no, go. I, actually, I'm going to go on a bit longer about this because I have other things to say. want to put a fine point on it's often the person making the accusations of cheating who is already cheating or about to cheat or in previous relationships has cheated because they're just projecting their bullshit and their sins onto their partner, right? There's also something else you need to consider when you're, when you're with somebody like this, and that is we need a zone, even in a long-term committed monogamous and successfully monogamous relationship that lasts decades and the, you know, the monogamous commitment is never violated, we need for our own sanity a zone of erotic autonomy, some privacy, We are going to have fantasies. We are going to have erotic daydreams about people in our lives that we might want to be with if we weren't in this committed monogamous relationship. And monogamy and a monogamous commitment, again, and as always, does not mean you don't want to fuck other people. It means you don't fuck other people. You're still going to want to fuck other people, but you don't. And we need to allow for our partners in committed monogamous relationships to have fantasies, to have daydreams, to have crushes, to sometimes flirt with other people, to feel affirmed in their attractiveness. And that redounds to our benefit because then our partner comes home charged and confident and they feel desirable. And then they plow that into you and then they are more desirable to you. So to be with somebody who wants some transparent 360-degree view of who you are and to be in control of it at all times is really to live in an erotic police state. And that's nowhere anyone wants to live or can live. It is to live in a police state is a nightmare politically, socially, but to live in an erotic police state with a partner who is constantly scrutinizing, constantly fault finding, constantly searching for evidence of crimes, thought crimes. If you haven't actually cheated on them, thought crimes because you thought about it, because you had a fantasy, because you had a crush, because you flirted for a moment, because there is a coworker that you sometimes go out to have a drink with with other people present and it gets a little flirty and then you come home all charged up and you plow that into your partner to somebody who regards all of that as a betrayal and then emotionally and sometimes physically in some cases beats the shit out of you for it day after day after day after day. No, you can't be married to the Stasi, to the East German secret police. You can't be in a relationship with Eric fucking Honiger. You can't. Google it. You'll know what I mean if you go Google that, kids. Eric Honiger, president of East Germany for a very long time, ran a police state. A lot of people didn't want to live there. A lot of people jumped over the Berlin Wall to get the fuck out of there. Caller, circling back to you, if you won't go into therapy and get a grip on this, jump the wall. Get the fuck out. Go. Okay, we're going to take a quick break from your calls because we want to have a quick convo with Dr. Justin Lay Miller, research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the blog Sex and Psychology and a past guest on the Savage Lovecast. He has a new book out, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Hey, Dr. Justin, how are you? Great. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure. Congratulations on the new book. I know what it is to get a book out and it is peeing a cinder block, basically, is kind of how it feels. <laughs> so congrats. Thank you. Yeah, it was several years in the making, so I'm thrilled that it's finally finally out. So you look at uh, not sexual activity in, in this book, not what people are doing, but what people are thinking about doing, what people fantasize about. Is this not an area that's been subject to much research? 
Scientists have certainly studied sexual fantasies before, but there's actually surprisingly little research on it, and a lot of it is outdated. In fact, the last major scientific review paper looking at sexual fantasies was published in, I think, 1995. So there's, you know, kind of a gap uh, in our knowledge, and sexual fantasies is something that is been of interest to me for a really long time. And there are all these questions I had that just hadn't yet been answered, like how we see ourselves in our sexual fantasies and what that means. Uh, so I wanted to, to, to really comprehensively look at this. And some of the things that you found uh, writing this book, some of the things in the book are going to surprise people. Some of them surprised me. Uh, for instance, that men are likelier to to have fantasies that revolve around emotional intimacy and, and an emotional connection, which is something that we attribute to women, that women need that sense of connectedness, whereas, you know, men could fuck a hole in the ground uh, and, and walk away. Um, and also that women are more interested in BDSM than men are. And that seems to fly in the face of, you know, the numbers of men versus women you see at kink events, but also our assumptions about the way male and female sexuality work. Yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot in here that challenges people's stereotypes. Um, I mean, not just about gender, but about a lot of things. Um, what we think people desire when it comes to sex uh, is, is very different from what is actually going on in our heads. And I think the, the emotional findings were really fascinating to me because they show that uh, more often than not, we are trying to meet various psychological needs through our sexual fantasies and our mm -hmm. fantasies are a, a reflection of our personalities and who we are and where we are at a given point in time. And uh, that, that's not something that's unique to a certain gender. Uh, so the emotional element is a big part of it. And also with regard to women's fantasies, they're much more adventuresome than I think most people uh, might expect. Now, is it that, you know, one of the things I've said a million times is that there are a hundred kinky men out there for every kinky woman and that kinky women can kind of write their own ticket. And, and and be selective because there there's a supply and demand issue there, and that seems to jibe with you know what you see out there in the world and what you see people putting themselves out there online and seeking and asking for. Uh, and is it just that men are, feel more entitled to ask for what they want than women? That there are a lot of women out there who have these fantasies who aren't seeking to realize them in real life because they haven't been socialized to believe that they're entitled to this kind of sexual fulfillment or it's too risky because of slut shaming or male violence for them to put themselves out there in this way. Yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely something to um, the, the social messages that we give women about what is acceptable sexual behavior. So the women are certainly judged more harshly than men for uh, just being desirous of sex. So that, that's part of it. But I think with respect to the BDSM stuff, um, there are a lot of safety concerns that, that women might have that might make it more likely to to be something that just stays in their head rather than they go out and actually try and act on it. And, and one area where we really see that is in the area of forced sex or rape fantasies, which were super popular. But a lot of people who I surveyed who had these fantasies said they didn't want to act on them or they were afraid to act on them because once it becomes a reality, you lose control of that. So it might be arousing in your head, but maybe not as much when uh, you, you actually try and act it out because you have to really trust the other person and know what they're doing. So uh, you found seven kind of broad and general themes or classes of sexual fantasy. Uh, and I'm going to rattle them off. Group sex, power play, uh, novelty and adventure, fetish, non-monogamy, passion, romance, and erotic flexibility, which I thought was really interesting, particularly the finding that as men age, as straight identified men age, that they are likely to begin to have fantasies involving same-sex 
sex, same sex experimentation, which, you know, flies in the face of kind of this, uh, this idea that female sexuality is fluid or more fluid than male sexuality. Mm-hmm. And it could be that maybe men grow into their flexibility uh, over time. Um, uh, so, I, you know, I don't know fully how to explain it because that finding was really surprising to me. But uh, surprising it, to it me too. That, yeah, <laughs> it, it suggests that sexual fluidity isn't something that is unique to women, and that uh, you know, again, it, it challenges a lot of our beliefs and assumptions about gender and sex. And maybe for the same reason that we don't think that women are as into BDSM or as kinky as men, because there aren't as many women out there who have these kinks, seeking them out in in, in real life. Uh, Maybe because of the homophobia in the culture, men with fantasies about same-sex experiences are similarly less likely, straight men, straight-identified men, to seek to act them out in real life because they still wish to be perceived as straight men. And you know, we have a culture where a woman can have some same-sex experiences, even a same-sex relationship, and identify as straight and people will still believe her. Whereas a straight guy who one time made out with a guy – or did a sit-up, drank a mimosa, had a feeling, saw a Broadway musical, no one's ever going to believe he's a straight guy ever again. So it's the, the consequences yeah. for straight guys around how they're perceived if they have a same-sex experience are not as dire as the consequences for women who seek out power play sex who might be physically abused, uh, of course, but they're still dire. And, and, and perhaps inhibiting in the same way that, that women who have these fantasies about power play feel inhibited because they're afraid. Right. And I think that's something that does change uh, to some degree with age, because as you get older, you maybe become more confident in your sexuality. Maybe you don't care quite as much about what other people think. Or you're thinking, hey, time is running uh, out. It's now or never. If I'm going to suck a dick, I need to do it now. (laughs) It could be. Uh, I don't know if that's the the thought process going on there (laughs) or not, but there there seems to be something really interesting going on with with age and and sexual fantasies. Um, And, you know, as we get older, our psychological needs change, and I think our fantasies adjust to try and meet those needs in some way. Uh, And I think for a lot of people, um, you know, as they get older, they're likely to enter uh, a long-term monogamous relationship. That's what most people do. Uh, and then that leads to this sort of craving for novelty and excitement. And mm-hmm. so we see this increasing interest in threesomes and among heterosexually identified men for same-sex experiences. And it might all be tied to that uh, just need for, for novelty and excitement and escape. One of the things I thought was interesting about the book was power play being uh, a separate and distinct category as opposed to an overarching category. I love that Oscar Wilde quote, that everything in the world is about sex except sex. Sex is about power. Because with most fantasies uh, that, that you know aren't on their face about power, there's often like this powerful current running through them that is about power. Like somebody with a foot fetish, uh, you know, it, admiring feet in the same way that you admire – that someone else might admire breasts and being turned on by feet in the same way and to the same intensity that somebody else might be turned on by breasts – uh, cannot seem about a power play on its face, but being down on the floor at someone's feet, kind of groveling, when you see foot play in action, there's power there. And, you know, the foot fetish is often coupled with uh, a submissive identity or, or an enjoyment of, of erotic submission. And so you, the, the way you break these things out, uh, all of the different kinks, uh, power play, which for me seems to be the umbrella under which most kinks, uh, 
are, are covered, the umbrella that covers most kinks, not so for you. Can you can you unpack that for me a little bit? Can you break me out of my uh, the groove that I've carved for myself, my thinking around kink that uh, and sexual fantasies that they're almost always about power? That wasn't your finding. Well, I, I think there's a lot of truth to the idea that power is embedded in a lot of our fantasies. And the themes the that I extracted, I wouldn't necessarily say that they're, that they're all independent. Because when people were describing their fantasies to me, oftentimes there were uh, there would be more than one theme evident in them. So there might be a power element. There might be a multi-partner element. There might be a novelty element. Um, so, so sometimes... Uh, there's a lot of overlap in the, the themes and characteristics there, which I think is consistent with what you're saying. So uh, I guess the way that I would summarize and describe this is that those seven themes are not independent and mutually exclusive. There can certainly be a lot of overlap. And um, the, the power part could be an umbrella theme that cuts through a lot of those other desires. And I think the novelty theme could be as well. Okay, two two last questions quickly. Um, you you say when people were uh, describing their sexual fantasies to you, how did you get people to open up to you about their sexual fantasies? Because people sometimes have a really hard time articulating their sexual fantasies uh, to their partners, um, maybe because they fear rejection. Is it just that opening up to a sex researcher that they didn't have to see ever again or interact with face-to-face was less inhibiting than opening up to somebody who might take the kids and go? Absolutely. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of shame and stigma we carry around with respect to our fantasies that inhibits us from sharing it with real life people, including the people we're actually having sex with. So mm-hmm. for whatever reason, people feel more comfortable telling a stranger on the internet what it is that they fantasize about. Or a sex worker on a business trip. Or that too. You know, clearly people want to talk about this just only in a limited safe setting where they they don't feel like other people are going to, to find out about it and maybe gossip or uh, use it in some other way to, to hold it against them. Okay, so the subtitle to your book, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. How can it help you improve your sex life? Not just the science, but talking about your fantasies or learning how to talk about your fantasies. Uh, I think it's obvious how talking about your fantasies can improve your sex life because then maybe you can do some of the shit that you're fantasizing about. But how does the science help Mm -hmm. you uh, improve your sex life? So the science does a few things. One is it helps us to understand what's normal when it comes to sex. What is a a normal sexual fantasy? And so just learning and better understanding your own desires and what they mean, where they come from, and how you're not alone in having them can be really helpful in terms of giving people that permission that they need to Uh, talk about this. I hate the word normal. I hate the word normal. I just want, I want to throw that out rather than redefining normal to cover everything, which maybe I do because I'm always saying to people when it comes to human sexuality, variance is the norm. So the more varied or weird or off the, the map charts you are, that's actually normal to, to be a weirdo. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, sexual fantasies are normal, but some people's sexual fantasies are in bananas, right? Right. And and I should be clear, when, when I say normal, I say that with a, a scientific meaning, which which basically means that normal is common. Uh, it, it doesn't apply any kind of value judgment, whether it's healthy or unhealthy, moral and moral. To me, normal is just is it common or not. Uh, and um, what what we find is that most people think their fantasies are rarer than they really are. Hmm. Uh, so if I, if I ask people to estimate how many other people do you think have this fantasy, they tend to underestimate. So I think just better understanding that, hey, your fantasies are widely shared is, is, is a useful thing, that you're, you're not weird and abnormal the way that you might think that you are. 
Dr. Justin Lay Miller, Research Fellow at the Kinsey Institute, author of the terrific blog, If You're Interested in Sex, If You're Reading Savage Love, You Should Definitely Also Be Reading Sex and Psychology. Congrats on the new book. Tell me what you want, The Science of Sexual Desire, and how it can help you improve your sex life. Uh, Justin, it was really great chatting with you. Um, can you come back? I'm sure we're going to get some questions about sexual fantasies in the next uh, month or two. So while you're on your book tour, I want to pull you back onto the show to tackle some listener questions. Sounds great. I'm happy to talk about sex fantasies anytime. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Great. Thank you. Hey, Dan. I'm a 33-year-old straight male. I've been in a committed relationship for about a year and a half now with a woman I plan on marrying within the next couple of years. When we have sex, it's fantastic. It's usually about once every week or two. Great compatibility with sex drives, everything like that. But my problem comes when the fact that my girlfriend never initiates sex. In the entire year and a half we've been together, I've always been the one that actually starts the ball rolling. And whenever I do, it's fantastic. But the problem is, if I'm not in the mood for whatever reason, for a prolonged period of time, she gets bent out of shape because she is. But even when she's like that, she still never initiates it. We've talked about it before. She's clarified that she just really likes it when I initiate it because she is really submissive. But at the same time, it kind of causes a little bit of friction when she wants it but won't actually move on that. Open to any suggestions you've got. Love the show. Keep it up. You just need to reframe her initiating as an act of submission. And that's possible. When she gets fucking horny, have this conversation with her. You will initiate. You will initiate when you're horny. You will do the lion's share, most of, the majority of, the vast majority of the initiating, but you don't want her to stew and become sexually frustrated or become angry and resentful if your libido wanes for a little bit, if you're distracted and you aren't initiating. And so you would like her to initiate. That doesn't mean that she has to be the sexual aggressor. She can get on her knees in front of you and ask you for sex or beg you for sex because she needs it. She can initiate from her knees. She can initiate... And ask for sex with submissive posture. And if you frame it for her like that, that there may be times in our relationship where you need it and I want you to come to me and come to me in this way that it will be arousing for you because it's going to be styled in this way where it is maybe not degrading isn't the word I would attach to it if she's not into erotic degradation. But it is at the very least a submissive physical posture. A submissive place from which you can ask me for the sex that in that moment you need. And then I will take it from there. Hi, Dan. I'm the tech savvy at Rescues. I'm a 28-year-old cisgender gal living in L.A. I've been with my boyfriend for roughly six months now. When I first met him, I knew he was my person and I wanted to spend my life with him for as long as he would allow. Everything is pretty close to perfect most of the time. But one big thing I'm really struggling with is this damn near life-crippling lack of self-confidence. He truly doesn't believe he should be happy. And things that are happy, as he says, quote, cheer, really make him uncomfortable because he doesn't think he deserves it. So when small things go wrong, like too much traffic or accidentally buying turkey when he meant to buy chicken at the store, or even, you know, dropping coffee grounds everywhere all over the floor, he can fly off the handle at himself for days at a time. Not only ruining his day, but mine as well, since I spend most of my evenings with him. He likes watching my dog while I'm at work. I try to remind him things like this happen to everyone, and they really aren't a big deal. He says he knows and he wishes he was normal and that these small things didn't bother him. I've tried to talk him into some therapy, but since a few years ago, way before I met him, he had kicked his Xanax addiction on his own, and he thinks he can fix himself. But he also says he doesn't want to change, and he likes how he is. Last night, he said he's just waiting for it to build until he finally snaps on himself or, unfortunately, someone else. 
which scares the pants off me since I work in the funeral industry and I don't need any more of that extra stress. Telling him that I love him and care about him and offering to help when I can doesn't work since he doesn't think he deserves it and always declines any sort of assistance. He does so much for me and is seriously the nicest, most genuinely generous person I've ever met. I want to help him manage his demons, but I just don't know how for someone who truly thinks they are a garbage person. If you or your listeners can think of something I can say or do to help de-escalate these situations or help him at least realize he's worth it to me, I would really appreciate it. Controlling behavior. He flies off the handle for days at a time, makes himself miserable, makes you miserable. You are now in this position where you're desperately trying to figure out how to bubble wrap his world so he doesn't have these problems. You're going to dance attendance on his freakouts. Can you not see that this is manipulative in a kind of underhanded, creepy way? Oh, my damage. Oh, my insecurities. Oh, my this. Oh, my that. I'm so upset. Therefore, you must dance for me. Yeah, no. It's been six months. This will escalate over time. This will get worse. I would run if I were in your shoes. If you want to give this guy a chance, you need to tell him that he needs to get a fucking therapist. Getting a therapist doesn't mean he's going to be marched into a room where they strap him into a chair and put a Xanax funnel down his throat and pump him full of Xanax again. But he needs to be with someone who can help him tap into some if indeed these feelings are genuine and this isn't abusive controlling behavior in an attempt to manipulate his girlfriend and everyone around him to dance attendance upon his moods and his freakouts, if it is insecurity and low self-esteem, he needs to work on that with someone. Not his girlfriend, a professional. Because to have a girlfriend, you have to be in good working order. And you aren't in good working order if, if you are inconsolable and in a rage and demanding everyone's attention around you for days at a time after dropping coffee grounds on the fucking floor. He needs to grow the fuck up and then get a girlfriend. If you want to stick it out, tell him that he can do a little growing the fuck up while he has a girlfriend. But he needs to get a counselor if he wants you to continue playing the role of his girlfriend. Dan, this is in response to the woman calling saying that the guy didn't tell her he had a kid. I completely disagree with your take on this. Four weeks out and you haven't told her? Maybe second date or third date, I would understand. But four weeks not telling someone you have a kid? Having a kid is a huge deal breaker for lots of people, whether that's right or wrong. But four weeks is too long to wait somebody to tell them that. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to the woman who was worried about a resume gap caused by being caught up in a arbitration with a previous perverted employer. I think you guys gave great advice that prospective employers might not even notice, especially if she leads with something else, like something forward-looking. But in case they do notice and insist on details, I think a good brief response would be, uh, look, I was unfortunately the victim of a crime and was caught up in arbitration for some time, arbitration that I'm proud to say I won. She doesn't have to specify at all that it was an employer with whom she was in arbitration. And uh, if she tacks on something like, oh, I'm very much looking forward to putting that behind me and returning to the workforce, I think she's golden. Hi, Dan. This is in response to the caller who left her job and took a year off after having a boss who was a sexual predator. 
Um, I feel you, caller. I had to leave my job and take a year off after working in a place that at first I thought would be great, but it turned out to be a very conservative organization that didn't allow me to express my gender identity, and it felt extremely hostile. It took a while after my year off, but now I'm finally in my dream job. I'm actually calling from my beautiful office right now. During my interviews after my year off, I didn't talk about the terrible job much. I talked about the things I love and the great things I did on my year off, travel, creative projects, and seeing family. Obviously, I didn't spend the entire year doing any of that stuff. I actually spent a lot of it feeling depressed on the couch watching Netflix, but I like to travel and I took a couple of trips. So I emphasized to employers that I used the year off for travel and exploration. Not all of them asked about my employment gap, but when they did, it was quick and they just wanted the highlights. What they're really interested in is your job skills and your personality as a colleague. If they ask why you left the old job, you can highlight the differences between their organization. Like that was a small place and I want to work in a big place like this. That was a place that didn't value technology and I want to work in an innovative place like this. Highlight the positive differences that make your potential new job so great. Employers appreciate positivity, and they can tell when someone is passionate about where they put their creative energy. So if I can get my dream job and a beautiful office, so can you. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Remember, if you are not a subscriber to the Magnum Edition of the Savage Lovecast, you are missing half the show and half the guests each week. Consider subscribing. Go to savagelovecast.com. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Justin Lay Miller on Twitter at Justin Lay Miller. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.